Hello, it's Friday, February the 4th. I'm Andrew Pearce and this is The Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail newsroom. Coming up, Denzel Washington. You've seen him on film. Are you going to see him on stage playing King Lear, possibly in London? The Governor of the Bank of England, he earns a little shy of 600000 He's telling us, don't ask for a pay rise because it could increase inflation. Has the Chancellor also done enough to curb fuel poverty with those raft of announcements on Thursday? But first, a fifth advisor has walked out of Downing Street. Is it all drawing to an end for Boris Johnson's premiership? A policy advisor, Eleanor Narizansky, is the latest to quit number 10. She was in the policy unit, making five senior staff to have quit number 10 in 24 hours. Boris Johnson is now, frankly, battling to save his premiership as more and more Conservative MPs consider whether or not to oust him. Joining me now is the Deputy Political Editor at the Daily Mail, John Stevens. John, um, uh, Eleanor Narizansky, she was in the policy unit. The big departure there, of course, was Manira Mirza, who was the head of the policy unit, who's worked for him on and off for 14 years. Is this a sign, rats deserting the sinking ship? Is this a sign that people think game's up for Boris? Well, I think there were two different types of resignations yesterday. There were the ones, uh, Jack Doyle, Director of Communications, Dan Rosenfield, the Chief of Staff, Martin Reynolds, the Principal Private Secretary. They were people who'd agreed to go with Boris Johnson as part of this reset post the party gate row. Their departures are meant to help the Prime Minister be able to draw a line under this and move on. The one that was a surprise, though, was this Manira Mirza resignation. She didn't just leave, she also left with this excoriating resignation letter saying that there were loads of problems with Boris Johnson's leadership, that she hadn't been happy, that he hadn't listened over the Jimmy Savile row. And I think that's the one that really did take number 10 by surprise and it did sting them a little. And then we had the chance of the Exchequer um, in a press conference which had been pre-arranged exactly one hour after Manira Mirza had resigned um, uh, in a sense, um, adding to the Prime Minister's difficulties when three times he refused to say rule out running for the leadership, although he said it was a hypothetical situation. But more importantly, he also said, asked about the Jimmy Savile and Manira Mirza said he wouldn't have used, made those comments or made those remarks, which was not seen as helpful at all. Yeah, and it was a new kind of level of antagonism between Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson. I mean, there's been a lot of times in the last few weeks when it would have been quite helpful to the Prime Minister for Rishi Sunak to pop up and say something supportive and he just happened to be away on a well-timed visit or wasn't seen in public for several days, that kind of key moment. But this was going further than that. This wasn't just staying silent. This was going on the attack and quite clearly giving a message to Tory MPs. If I was in charge, I'd be doing things differently. And really, it does start to begin to look like he is manoeuvring himself. He is definitely shown there is a separation between him and Boris Johnson. I think that's going to be the really tricky thing over the next few months is as Boris Johnson tries to keep the show on the road, tries to keep pushing forward, if he has Rishi Sunak continually showing there's a distance between him and the PM, then it's hard to see how the government's going to 
stay together. We saw they had that signed letter this week at the beginning of the week, John. I, was, I don't know if it was given to the Sunday newspapers, stressing that they were behind, they were united on right, raising national insurance, which actually I think is political insanity, but that's another matter. Um, but you're right, we have not seen Rishi side by side with the Prime Minister for some time. I'm, I'm struggling to think when we last saw them together. Yeah, so I think they were sat next to each other when um, Boris Johnson came to the House in the wake of the publication of that Sue Gray report. He was there next to him there on the front bench in the Commons. But, you know, as I say, a lot of the time you don't see Rishi Sunak for days on end. He is becoming a submarine in the way that Theresa May often was under David Cameron, just vanishing for days on end when it'd be quite helpful to have them out and about. And very few public comments from the from Rishi uh, supporting the Prime Minister. No, exactly. And I mean, yesterday, with Boris Johnson really was struggling with this Jimmy Savile row. He had lost one of his key aides. It really wasn't what he needed in that moment to have Rishi Sunak criticising him. And just finally, John, on that, I suppose when Rishi made those comments, would the Prime Minister have been watching uh, in Number 10, the press conference? Uh, was he next door? I mean, and if so, he'd have been watching it, presumably, with in absolute horror. So I don't think he was next door watching it. I think he was actually on a visit in the northwest when things all started to fall apart. I think he was out campaigning somewhere near Bolton. I think that's when things started to quickly develop yesterday and they found out about Manir Mirza leaving. Then they rushed out the announcements of these other resignations and you had the Chancellor making these comments. I think Boris Johnson was watching from afar. Yeah, extraordinary. When the mouse is away, the cat will play. Um, uh, just finally, um, John, any more letters gone in to Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of the 1922 committee from Tory MPs, seeking uh, a confidence debate? Yeah, so it is, um, we had a trickle the other day. We haven't had anyone going publicly today so far or yesterday. I think a lot of people were watching, what is Boris Johnson's next move now? Does he start look, look like he's getting things back together? Does he get on the front foot? Or do things start to continue to look like they're falling apart? What's your hunch? I think you'll probably see a few more letters in the next couple of weeks, but I think it's still quite likely you won't reach the 54 needed for a contest for quite a while. Yeah, that's what I think too. That's John Stevens, who is, of course, Deputy Political of the Daily Mail, and he will have um, some authoritative pieces about all of this in Saturday's Daily Mail, of course, which we'll be covering in Mail Plus as well. Tweet us at Mail Plus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. So with energy prices set to soar by 54% in April, the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, has announced a package of measures. Well, they include £200 in the form of loans for every household, which will have to be paid back. The Chancellor is also giving a council tax rebate for homes in band A to D worth £150. But the average increase in people's fuel bills is going to be closer to £700. Adam Scorer is Chief Executive of National Energy Action. Adam, uh, he's gone halfway, but only halfway, the Chancellor. Um, What do you think this is going to mean for families who are already struggling to pay their fuel bills? Well, it it, it is going to be inadequate. So I think the Chancellor had a choice. Um, And I think he acknowledged as much when he made his his statements that to go um, broad and shallow or to go targeted and deep. Um, and he's chosen the, the broad and narrow, so everyone's going to get some support, and that's going to be really welcome for millions of households. Uh, but the, the the fact that he hasn't gone targeted and deep 
for the most vulnerable households means that it's sadly not going to touch the site. And that, if you think about it, the two price rises, the £150 in October and the £700 in April, because people don't reset their budgets just because Ofgem or the Treasury tell them to, uh, that's going to still leave them with a £500 price rise. And if you're already struggling, it, it, it's just not possible to, to find a way of making those ends meet. So he just hasn't gone far enough to avert what we call actually devastation for some of the households on the on the lowest income. The energy cap will be looked at again in October and there's no guarantee that prices are going to fall. In fact, they could stay where they are. They could even go higher. And we, of course, still don't know what's going to happen between Russia and the Ukraine. And if Russia does uh, launch some form of military action, that will see an even bigger spike in energy prices. Well, the the price rise seems uh, baked in for October, if we're perfectly uh, honest. That seems like that pretty assured. How much it will be, we don't know. And of course, Ofchem have actually are consulting, and I think they've come to a pretty much a, a minded to decision that it's not going to be twice a year anymore. It's going to be three times a year. There's many more costs that they'll build into the price cap. There's other costs that will be flowing through as well. So I, I don't. I think it's pretty nailed on that we're going to get another price rise in October. Right. Uh, in which case, do you think the Chancellor then has to come back to the Commons uh, to announce even more financial help? Well, I, I think he will. And I, I know the government likes um, kind of one-off interventions uh, and, and ad hoc interventions as well. Uh, I, I don't see how he can how he can not come back, and not just because of the energy price rises just because of the cumulative impact that the cost of living is going to have on household incomes and it's just super it's the rocket fuel energy prices are the rocket fuel behind the cost of living and he will just have to come back i think so i think the idea that you can do this once and step away and have a bit of a gesture for everybody is just not going to work what are you seeing hardship already in some households well hardship was there even before the price rises of course because people on the lowest incomes uh, the, the cost of keeping homes walk is difficult. But yet, yes, we are. I mean, and, and every advice organisation will have people, let's be honest, will have people uh, on the phone in tears, just desperate, no idea how they're going to get through the day, looking at their families and thinking, oh, my children are going to be hungry and they're going to be cold. We can't have people over because I wouldn't have them in the house. Of course, over winter, um, we see a lot of health-related problems. So cardiovascular issues, respiratory conditions, more strokes, more heart attacks. We know, and it's it's sad, brutal truth, though, is that, you know, thousands of people die every year in the UK in winter directly because of cold homes. And if you add higher prices to that, that will grow as well. So it's financial hardship, it's health, it's just depression. Uh, and unfortunately, and it, you know, I have to say it, it's early death as well. I can say, how worried are you? I mean, what are there figures available yet about the the number of pensioners, for instance, um, who are on a fixed income and often a low income, um, who are going to be experiencing genuine fuel poverty this winter? I think what we'll have seen is the numbers in fuel poverty. um, There were about 4 million households in the UK in fuel poverty before October. The October price rise pushed that up to about 4.5 million, Uh, even with the mitigations that the Chancellor has brought in. And as I said, They've got lot, they've got merit to them. We're still going to see about five and a half million households in fuel poverty. Now, the older population are less represented in those numbers because of the the benefits they have. But of course, they're much more represented in those people who are physiologically susceptible to the cold. So even though there may not be so many in fuel poverty directly, they'll be the ones at the GPs. They'll be the ones at A and E. Unfortunately, 
they'll be the statistical, the terrible statistics of, of early deaths. Just finally, how do you define fuel poverty, Adam? Well, there's a number of definitions. So government have a, a more complicated definition. They different definitions of the all the nations in the UK. It's called the Lilly um, uh, definition. It's about low income and low energy efficiency uh, households, and that's really to to judge how effective uh, energy efficiency programs are being. But to be honest, the rule of thumb is if you're spending 10% of your income to afford a decent level of of heat and power, then you're in fuel poverty or you're in fuel stress, as some other organizations have been calling it. And that's the definition that we've used, that we use for a long time, uh, that identifies around five and a half million households by April in fuel poverty. That's a hell of a lot of households. And that 10% of how much they're spending on fuel presumably will increase when these new increases come into effect? Well, of course, you also have the edge effect. So people who are just on the, on the risk of tipping over it, and households who, because their incomes are so constrained, and they may live across, you have to remember that some of the people on the lowest incomes also live in the least efficient homes. Uh, and so the percentage of income is 20%, 25%. For some people, it's a severe impossibility to be able to heat your homes properly. For many people, you're tipping over the edge about whether you fall into the definition of fuel poverty, but pretty much you experience the challenge of being able to afford a warm home. That's uh, Adam Scorer. He is the Chief Executive of National Energy Action. Thanks so much for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to our podcast, videos, opinion pieces and more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boyd Pierce. So the Governor of the Bank of England has asked that British workers refrain from asking for pay increases as inflation continues to rise. Andrew Bailey, who is the Governor, who earns £500,000 a year, warns that prices are expected to climb faster than pay, putting the biggest squeeze on household finances in decades. Joining me now is Luke Hilgard, who's Executive Director of the High Pay Centre. It's always difficult, isn't it, Luke, when somebody like the Governor of the Bank of England, who earns what most people would call a fat cat salary, says to other people, don't ask for a pay rise because you're going to contribute to inflation. You're going to make it worse. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's part of the reason why we're seeing a lot of cynicism with politicians, with the the business elite who have a do as I say, not as I do kind of attitude. And obviously, there's been some very prominent examples of that in uh, in politics recently. And this uh, intervention from the governor of the Bank of England will elicit a a similar response, uh, I imagine. His comments around the effect that pay rises could have on inflation are not without basis. But if, if you think of the economy like a pie, the size of the pie overall determines how much we all have, but also how it's distributed. And I think that sort of in tougher times, we need to do a better job of distributing the, the, the pie a bit more easily, evenly, sorry, And I think if the governor of the Bank of England is going to make political interventions uh, saying that lower-paid middle earners shouldn't be asking for for a pay rise, he should also be pointing out that uh, a way to get through this current crisis in terms of cost of living would be for us to do a a, a better job of uh, 
uh, of how we distribute the uh, the metaphorical pie as well. I'm just looking. In fact, I, I underrepresented his salary because in in the 2020-21 financial year, he in fact earned five hundred and seventy-five thousand pounds, which is pretty good going. Now, I'm not saying he doesn't deserve it. He's got a huge job, but it makes it all the more difficult then to say perhaps to people, work perhaps nurses or teachers, uh, you can't have a pay rise because that's effectively what he's saying. Inflation is now at a 30-year high and it's heading for 7%. He's telling people put pay rises in which are below the rate of inflation. Right. And, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. The earnings of about 150000 put you in around the top 1% mark, right? So he's earning, you know, more than three times, close to four times what even someone at the the top 1% point is making. So he definitely does do a very difficult and important job. And, you know, I'm certainly not saying that everybody should be paid the same. But if you want to give someone the reward and incentive of a materially better lifestyle than the average man or woman you don't need to pay them as much as half a million quid in order to do that, particularly not a a public servant who ought to be motivated by um, being good for the country as a whole, rather than just the the pay package that they're they're taking home. The other thing about his his comments is, of course, they kind of imply that this has been a a sort of golden age for pay and that um, workers have been gorging themselves of pay increases and now it's time for a bit of restraint but you know that couldn't be further from the truth inflation has been outpacing pay meaning people's pay has effectively been falling for the you know the best part of a decade saying that people have to you know have to have it even harder is hardly going to be a message that most people that people are going to be very receptive to i don't think this will go down in what the uh, tories call the so-called red wall don't think it will go down very well there do you very few people in that part of the country will be earning anything like the half a million pounds and would benefit greatly from a fairer distribution of uh, of resources if we introduce policies like more progressive taxation, stronger trade union rights and employment rights and worker representation on boards. You might see some of the lower and middle earners having more disposable income, keeping a fairer share of the wealth they create, meaning that it, uh, that it so much doesn't quite flow out to the, uh, the those at the top, the executives and investors who are more concentrated in London and South East. Very interesting, Luke. That's good to talk to you. That's Luke Hilljard. He's the executive director of the High Pay Centre talking about the governor of the Bank of England urging people to exercise pay restraint. All very well for him, who earns £575,000 last year. So it's that time of the podcast. It's time to talk sport. And who better to talk to than Tim Nichols, who's deputy sports editor. Huge weekend, uh, Tim, particularly in rugby. It's the start of the Six Nations. And let's face it, We've got to do better this year than last time because we were appalling last time, weren't we? That is an understatement. If we do any worse than last time, we're going to end up with a wooden spoon, which would be the ultimate humiliation. But that is not going to happen because Italy are absolutely hopeless and haven't won a game since 2015. So, uh, but you're right, England must improve. They were, they were very poor last year. We, look, we, we've had two years of Six Nations that have been very flat and very dull without the fans. It hasn't had the usual feeling and buzz and atmosphere around it. What is such a fantastic traditional tournament that, you know, we, we all love it. And um, it, the country sort of, you know, is really, um, it's a really popular event. And obviously by the end of this, we're, 
once the Six Nations finishes, you, you know, we're into spring and then everything's feeling a bit brighter. But the first weekend is Scotland versus England. It doesn't get any bigger, really. Certainly not for Scotland, but it's a, it's a tough one for England. Calcutta Cup match. There's so much history behind this rivalry. Uh, and, and Scotland have got one of the best teams they've had, uh, certainly that I can remember, certainly in the professional era. They, they really are a force to be reckoned with now. England lost at Twickenham for the first time in many, many years to Scotland last year. So they'll be out for revenge. They've not had a great record against the Scots in, in recent years. Uh, just one win out of the last four. And um, it's going to be a fascinating uh, encounter. England have got quite a few people out. Scotland are at full strength. Um, England are just about favourites with the bookmakers, but it's a very, very tough one to call and Scotland are more than capable of uh, beating England and, and, and you know it's all about momentum in the Six Nations if you get off to a good start obviously the Grand Slam's on and the title's on if you lose that first match it, it really can have a knock-on effect for the rest of the tournament so all eyes on Murrayfield tomorrow at half four it's going to be a, it's going to be a pulsating encounter uh, and and a great way to start the tournament brilliant stuff and then of course on in football tim it's the glory and the magic of the fa cup yeah there's nothing quite like it you know we keep hearing every year that you know fa cup's not quite what it was but you 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 tell that to kidderminster fans or cambridge united fans who both both clubs had fantastic victories uh, in the third round um, kidderminster will be playing uh, west ham tomorrow lunchtime but Kidderminster are in the sixth tier of English football, and that's what's so wonderful about the FA Cup. It brings these teams together. West Ham are having a really good season under David Moyes in contention for the top four. They're going to National League North, Kidderminster Harriers. You know, I'm sure they've got a very muddy pitch, uh, and it's going to be it's going to be the great leveller, and that that is going to be a, a tie to really keep an eye on. Hartlepool at Palace as well is another one to keep an eye out for. Uh, we've got Frank Lampard's first game as Everton manager. Uh, Cambridge United has mentioned they've got home tie against Luton having beaten Newcastle shocked mega rich Newcastle in the last round that's going to be a big occasion uh, as well as uh, Bournemouth versus Boreham Wood tomorrow uh, on Sunday rather which you know might not sound very uh, exciting but Boreham Wood a, a conference team non-league team Bournemouth obviously been in the Premier League uh, in recent seasons and so that's another one to keep an eye on it you know the FA Cup we, we know what it's all about but you can't you just can't beat those shocks, and if if there is one tomorrow, uh, it, it will be you know it will be of national significance, and it will be all over every newspaper. Match of the day will be going big on it, and and uh, that's what it's all about. So fingers crossed, there is a uh, there is a shock tomorrow uh, or, or on Sunday because um, that's what the cup's all about, Andrew. Absolutely right. That's Deputy Sports Editor Tim Nichols with all the latest news: Six Nations and FA Cup. Lots to look forward to. Thanks for joining us. So another great scoop for our showbiz legend, Baz Bamming Boy. He says, film legend Denzel Washington, he's got the barred bug and pretty bad. After his great screen performance as the Scott Macbeth, he's now revealed he wants to play the Shakespearean King Lear and he wants to do it on stage. Baz joins me now. Baz, great story. Is he an accomplished stage actor in the way... Ian McKellen is a great stage actor and a great film actor, or is he a film man? He started in the theatre. He studied classical theatre. He did at Eugene O'Neill. His first Shakespeare was a fellow at the age of 23, you know, in student uh, theatre. And he's, I've seen him on stage in Shakespeare two or three times, which is the third. He did the Much Ado About Nothing film with Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson back in the day. He's... Uh, he and I had an hour conversation and 40 minutes was spent about talking about the old bard. <laughs> so um, now, 
he wants to do it. Is he going to do it? Because he's got a, quite a few film projects still in the pipeline. No, he's definitely going to do it. I mean, I've known Denzel for a long time, and he is uh, a man of his word. He will do King Lear in 2023 on stage, then do a film version. But of course, in between, he's going to do uh, the third installment of his uh, Equalizer film series. You know, he likes to shake it up. He likes to do to, 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 a bit of Shakespeare, a bit of classical stuff, and then a big kick-ass action movie. Will he do King Lear on Broadway? Well, here's the thing. He has long wanted to make his theatre debut in the West End. And uh, he was going to do it a few years ago with a Lorraine Hansby play. But he, if, he, if people can, you know, bring him the right deal, he will do it in London. It, it, look, it's up to, if there's a producer of great vision, he will work with them. And if he can trust them, because he's an eagle-eyed so-and-so, you know, if he looks in your eyes and thinks he can't trust you, then he's gone. Yeah. Um, and what sort of King Lear would it be? He would have his, presumably, his very own interpretation of the character. Yeah, but he'll work with someone sensible. You know, he's got, he's got a group of directors he likes to work with. I mean, maybe it'll be Joel Cohen who, who directs the movie. Or it might be Daniel Sullivan. I mean, he'll work with solid people, people he trusts. And he will, he will do it pretty straight. He's not into all the, what can I say? Yes, some of the more exotic interpretations one has seen as Shakespeare. He's um he's won what one two Oscars hasn't he Baz in his time? He's won two Academy Awards. He's won a bunch of Tony Awards. He wouldn't mind winning, you know, a lot of Living Awards. By the way, he's never been he's never been nominated for a BAFTA in the UK for some reason. I was just about to ask that. What about a BAFTA? Um, if he plays King Lear on the London stage and he plays it well, then maybe he gets that BAFTA nomination and maybe he gets to win it. Yeah, yeah. For some reason, you know, a lot of the British film community are very snooty about Denzel. I've no idea why. Well, um, uh, it's, it will be a great part. It's a great story. And, um, uh, and we've also, of course, got the equaliser to look forward to first, Baz. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we go together. We go and watch it together. That would be lovely. That would be lovely. Uh, and, uh, and it's always a great to talk to you. That's Baz Bamboy. Great scoop again in his Friday column. The headline, Bitten by the Bard Bug, Denzel aims for King Lear. And if Baz says it's going to happen, it will. And I aim to be there, Baz. <laughs> I'll be with you. We'll be sitting second row centre. Okay. Sounds great. Sounds great. Always always a joy to talk to you. Take care, Baz. Thanks, Andrew. Take care. Bye. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back on Monday. Have yourselves a great weekend and good night. Good night.